God's foolish wisdom or this world's wise folly. Or maybe we could say God's wise folly or the world's foolish wisdom. At the end of the day, it's one or the other. We will live our lives, we will make our choices, we will stake our futures, and when we do so, we are engaging the present, dictated and driven by and informed by the wisdom of God, which currently is evaluated as foolishness, or we will embrace the wisdom of this world, which ultimately God says is folly. Another way to say this is we can chase after apparent success and sophistication as opposed to embracing the shame, the suffering, the ignobility of a Roman cross. That choice, what that choice looked like, is what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. In your Bibles, this church that is addressed by this letter, 1 Corinthians, it had to make a decision. Would it embrace the wisdom and sophistication and the, the baubles, can I say it that way? The attractiveness of this world. Or would it remain fixated upon the shameful cross of Jesus Christ? And that decision shows up in all areas of our lives. We come to our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Really, we'll start at the last verse of chapter 2. But as you find that text, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16, what we're going to find is we're going to find three problems in the text this morning. The first one is briefly covered. It's the problem of false apostate ministers that lay false and phony foundations for the church. The more pressing issue in the text is shallow and erring ministers, elders, pastors, who build in superficial or shallow ways, essentially worldly preachers. And then finally in the text, implied is the concern about church members who are pleased to have it that way. And the question is, where do we fall in that spectrum? So follow along with me as we consider God's Word this morning. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll begin with chapter 2, the last verse, verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 17 of chapter 3. And if you'll allow me to this morning, I want to highlight, even as I read, I want to highlight a very important issue, and that has to do with the pronouns that are involved. Now, we hear a lot about pronouns today. I'm not concerned about those issues But careful reading always pays attention to the pronouns. And so I'm going to point those out to you today because it matters as we look at this text. Verse 16 of chapter 2. This is God's word for us today. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have, notice, we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you... In other words, the church at Corinth. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Note the contrast. We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Now note, here's third person. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If anyone that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you, there's back to first person, or second person rather, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. A long text. But I think you'll see how it holds together. Because as we begin, we go back into verse 1, and we see that there's a basic problem here. And the basic problem in our text this morning is what I would call immature worldliness. Immature worldliness. Now, I know worldliness is kind of an old-fashioned church word. It sounds a little odd to some of us, who were raised in church, and these days we don't talk much about worldliness. But this is precisely what Paul is trying to draw out. He's trying to show us that there's this pervasive, consistent tendency for us to adopt the thinking, the values, the approaches of the world around us. And that worldliness is described in these verses as being babies living as though we are of the flesh. That's what we have here. Notice in verse 1, he uses the term brothers, but he says, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now, note that he does not say, I can't address you as natural men. That was the term he used in our text last week. That's the contrast. Last week, it was natural people who are, who are not believers, who are unregenerate. The, the term he uses, we would translate it soulish. They have a soul, they have life animating them, but they have no spiritual life. So you have that natural person, remember from last week, they can't even understand the things of God. They can't receive the things of God. And then you have the mature, he uses that phrase last week, the spiritual people, the people who have the Spirit of God. Now, what we're going to find in our text this morning is that those who have the Spirit of God who have more than just a soul, as it were, but they have a connection with God through His Spirit, sometimes they live as this person over here. But he doesn't choose this term natural. He chooses the term fleshly. They live as though they are in the flesh. And all of us recognize we are indeed in the flesh, but we're not to live according to the flesh. For those of us that have dealt with our Bibles for a long time, we used to call this carnality because that's the word that used to be translated, for you are carnal. It's translated fleshly here in our modern translations. But the issue is those who are spiritual but are living as though they're in this other category. They truly have the Spirit, they're truly redeemed, but they chase after fleshly things And in appearance, sometimes they look not drastically different from the natural man, who the flesh is all he has. We all still live in the flesh, but we must not be living according to the flesh, because our flesh is sinful. Now let me try to connect an idea with you for a moment. There's a biblical anthropology that flows through this text that's important for us to grasp. The truth of the matter is this unbeliever, every unbeliever you know, has within himself still the image of God. The image of God, which is the image in which he was made, created. In a sinner, all of us are born sinners. So everyone who is born, they are born with the image of God. That image of God is twisted and tainted. It is perverted. It is perverted by sinfulness. It is perverted by Adam's sin on our behalf. It is perverted by our own choices as we sin. The image of God 
We all bear it. Every person has dignity before God. Every person has, has a significance before God. This is the basis that, upon which we believe in the right to life for all people because everyone bears the image of God even though it is tainted. The believer has been redeemed and forgiven, but in the same way that the unbeliever has the image of God, which is tainted, he still carries it, but ultimately it doesn't rule him, as it were. The unbeliever still has his sinful flesh. The unbeliever is still struggling with what the Bible calls, the Greek word is sarks, and it's used in various ways, but in our context this morning, it's the problem of sinfulness that we still struggle with. Some of our modern Bibles translate this sinful nature. I think that's an unfortunate and confusing translation. Because the fundamental person who we are, we are regenerated. That's our nature. But we still struggle with our fleshiness. We still struggle with our sinfulness. And in the same way that the unbeliever has evidences of the image of God, even though he's an unbeliever, the believer has evidences of the sinfulness left over that one day we will finally lose when we are glorified. So this is the problem. The problem is living your life as a believer in Jesus, changed by the Spirit, but choosing to live as though the flesh dictates all things. Choosing to live as though our sinful flesh guides us instead of really living as who we really are, spiritual people, quote-unquote. Instead of living that way, we choose to live fleshly lives. And that was what was happening in Corinth. These Corinthians were manifesting attitudes and actions that were rooted in their still sinful flesh. They were living lives in which their values, and when we say values, we mean the way you make decisions every single day, they were living lives in which those values were indistinguishable from the world around them. And we used to call this carnality. But the problem with the term carnality is our minds immediately jump to sexual sin. And even though sexual sin can be a challenge... And in this day and age, perhaps more and more, it's a challenge with pornography and everything that's so easily available. The reality is carnality is not limited to sexual sin. The fleshiness that Paul is talking about that was manifest in the Corinthian church was primarily a sin of attitude. It was a sin of, of the way they thought about life. It was a sin of their worldview. It was a worldly immaturity. So they were living and worshiping and they were serving but they were doing so enamored and embracing the world's wisdom and the world's attitude and the world's values. And Paul says, I can't talk to you like spiritual people, even though you are spiritual. I can't talk to you like that because you're living as though you're fleshly people. And in a sense, what's he called them? He says, you are as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. In other words... When I began my ministry with you, all of you were drinking milk because that's all you could handle. But look at what he says. And even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. You are manifesting a fleshly attitude. And so you should have progressed to where you're no longer just drinking milk, but you're immature. You're a child. This worldly influence living as opposed to God's cross-centered wisdom is basically immaturity. Flesh out this metaphor a bit. Think with me for a minute. What's the nature of an infant? Well, an infant is vulnerable in its immaturity, isn't it? And Christians who live this way, who choose to follow after the world's philosophy, they are vulnerable. Vulnerable to temptation, just like an infant out in the wild. We also, as we think about this metaphor and try to flesh it out, we all recognize that time alone does not mature an infant. It takes more than that, doesn't it? It takes food. It takes nurture. It takes care to bring an infant into toddlerhood. And then the toddlerhood stage, which seems as though it will never pass away, the toddler stage comes into greater maturity. And then you think it's over, and then they become teenagers, right? <laughs> Pardon me, young people. But that's the process we all go through. We recognize it. But the problem is in the Corinthian church, there was still this immaturity. There was still this only the ability in spiritual things to drink milk because they were so enamored with the world around them. And Paul calls this a childishness. There's this worldliness that's immature. Now, I can't take a lot of time on this this morning, but the difference between milk and solid food or milk and meat 
It, it's not an issue that there are some doctrines that are milk doctrines, and then there are some doctrines that are meat doctrines. And so there are some doctrines that are simplistic, and that's all people want, and then sadly they never get beyond that. The difference is not different doctrines, and definitely there are not secret codes or there are not resources for those that are truly spiritual. That's not what's going on here. The problem is this. It's seen and acting on the connections and the depth and the insights and the applications. It's the ability to recognize the deep applications of God's Word. And if you're only drinking milk because you're so enamored with the world around you, you will have an elementary understanding of the Bible, but you will not think biblically. And more than that, you won't act biblically. Don't let it ever stop with the thinking because it has to follow through with your acting And so when we talk about milk and meat, we're talking about, indeed, a more solid knowledge of Scripture, but we're also talking about kind of mature theological reflection, making those connections, and we're talking about a perceptive Christian worldview, decision-making, and finding the discernment to look at something and to say, you know what, I think that distracts from what is truly important. That looks like something that is influenced by the philosophy of this world as opposed to influenced by a cross-rooted vision of God's wisdom, ultimately what we find in God's Word. And this is the challenge before every church. For example, if I could quote for you Colossians 1, 27 and 28, you remember this text? Paul says, God chose to make us, to make known the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let me stop for just a minute. He's talking there. He uses these same words we saw last week, mystery and Christ in you and glory. You see, it's the same concept that this comes from God and God has revealed it. And this is the nature of ministry. And so Paul goes on to say, him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, there it is again, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And if a church, if the ultimate fruit of a church's ministry is not that its people are more mature this year than they were last year, then that church is failing in its task. And it's possible that its people are still milk drinkers instead of eating the solid truths of God's Word. So one of the things we see here, by way of application, in verse 16 of chapter 2, we all have the mind of Christ. And the question is, having the mind of Christ will bring us to the place where we recognize that we are always growing We'll come back to that before we're through. Look in chapter 3. There are two examples that are given of what this immature worldliness looks like. Let me show them to you very quickly. Look in verse 3. It says, Therefore, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there's conflicts. Jealousy and strife. Conflicts. And then secondly, in verse 4, divisions. And those go together. There are conflicts because there's jealousy and strife, so you have conflicts. And then in verse 4, you have divisions. Verse 4 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human, immature children? Now, I love kids. You know that. I love talking about my grandkids all the time. I love it when they come over. They're supposed to come over later this week. I I love that when our kids are, are all together. But every now and then, kids will drive you crazy. You get that, right? I mean, the truth of the matter is the definition of children includes impatience. Can anybody say amen? Jealousy. Have you ever seen that? My grandkids have a constant debate about who is Grammy's favorite grandchild. It never ends because there's a sense of jealousy there. They tend to be, I know I'm on shaky ground here, but I just have to say it. Children tend to be inconsiderate because they're self-centered. And they also can sometimes be aggressive. This is the economics of the playground, right? This is who are left out from the games. That's the nature of childishness. And this immaturity, this worldliness that makes decisions about the way we treat people and the way we make decisions and the way we chase after things 
for those of us that are worldly, that we are too enamored with the values of this world, we manifest an immature worldliness, which is basically spiritual childishness. And what this text is calling us to is to behave like the spiritual people that we are, because inside God has made us new, and that happens through the gospel. The Corinthians needed basically to grow up. They were a prototypical case of arrested development. And we sometimes can be the same. What about us? I, I, I don't want to make you too uncomfortable this morning, but let me just ask you, as you reflect back on the week that you just lived, did your decisions reflect the mind of Jesus? Especially when you were short-tempered especially when you were seduced or tempted, especially, let's, let's even get more uncomfortable, especially perhaps when you were discouraged, did your responses represent the mind of Christ? Because we have the mind of Christ. And the fact that nearly all of us, if we're honest, we would be ashamed as we think about some of the ways we responded this week, it shows that we never really arrive We'll see that before we're through. Now, with all of this, this basic problem of immature worldliness, this text gives us not only the diagnosis, but it gives us the fundamental solution to this, the grounding of the solution. And that's what I want to begin to show you here with verse 5, because what we find is we find Paul's corrective. We find what Paul says, this is the way to clarify all of this and to correct it. And it's with this simple truth, which sounds perhaps simplistic to you. It's simple. It perhaps will sound too simplistic, but I think it's the basis of everything Paul says. This is the corrective in verse 5, that the church is God's doing. The church is God's doing. And life among the body of Christ, life among God's people, God has designed this. It is God's doing. Look at what he says in verse 5. These Corinthian believers, they were so fleshly that they were arguing about who their favorite teachers were. And in verse 5, he says, What then is Paul? What then is Apollos? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. It's a worldliness and it's immature to fixate on personalities or gifts or to fixate on performance. Because all of these that God has used in our lives, they are merely agents through whom God worked. It's God who's doing it. The word here, servants, in verse 5, it's basically the idea of table waiters. They're just the ones that get the work done. Later on, it's that term in the Greek is classified into a role in the church, the deacons. But he uses the term generally here because basically when we serve, we're just tools in the hands of God. It's God who's doing the work. Because God is the one who works. And God begins it and God ends it. And everything in the middle centers on Him. We've seen this over the last few weeks, if you remember. We began through all of this to see that, that God is the one who designed His great plan. By the way, what is His plan? It's not just living day by day. It's not just doing the best you can. It's not just finding some kind of good in life. The grand plan of God is, is encapsulated in His redemption. In the fact that He delights in taking sinners like us and through the death life and death of His Son, and then His Son's powerful resurrection. He gives us eternal life so that we will live eternally, even though we are unworthy, we'll live eternally, and eternally we will be a representation of how glorious He is. You see, the gospel, as important as it is in your life, the forgiveness that God gives, it's not even primarily about you. You and I, we are benefits of the gospel, but it's really about God and His glory. I wonder, are you there yet? Have you recognized that you are in need of a Savior and that God loves you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die, to offer new life? Have you realized that yet? And have you appropriated it in your own heart and life? Have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior? Because that's part of God's intention 
for this broken world, this rebel world, to redeem it to himself and all through eternity to represent his glory. What we're saying is that the church is God's doing. God designed the plan for redemption. He called us into his family. He gave us gifts and assigned us roles in the church. He's the one that provides the growth. That's what this text tells us. And ultimately, we're going to see he's the one that rewards us. The church is God's doing. And so we're to appreciate our leaders. We're to thank God for them. But we must always make sure that our praise terminates on God, not on the leader. Because if you overpraise your preacher, that's the cruelest thing you can do to him. Because that feeds his flesh far too often. Now, I've already told you, if you tell me I do a good job, keep it up. I, I can handle it. But, but the issue is God. The issue is what God is doing. It's His glory. It's His doing. It's His plan. It's His program. It's, it's His calling us together. The church is God's doing. And I just want to tell you that if, if the church is truly God's doing, He must care about it. We've said this before, but we have to revisit it. All of us have been hurt by the church at one time or another. Some of us have a list of churches that have hurt us at one time or another, that have disappointed us. And there are hard decisions that sometimes you have to make about being part of a church family. But listen carefully, as, as broken and as ineffective and as inefficient as churches are, the church is God's idea. It's God's doing. He loves His church. In fact, though it's not the language that Paul uses in this text or book, the church is not only his body, as we're going to see, it's not only his building, it's not only his field, the church is also his bride. He cares about the church. The church is God's doing. So there are two analogies that flesh this out. First of all, he says in verses 6 through 9 that the church is God's field. The church is God's field, His tilled land, His cultivated land. The church is God's field. And the focus here primarily, although this text is applied, by often we apply this text to our own lives, but primarily this is a warning to people who build churches. You recognize, I don't mean church buildings. I mean build churches, pastors, elders, leaders. This is a warning to people who are leading churches primarily. There may be applications to us, but I want to allow the text to say what it says. And primarily, Paul is talking about these like Paul himself, these like Apollos. Now look at it, beginning in verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The, growth. the, the servant is always secondary. The servant is always ancillary here. It is, it is God who's doing the work in the church. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. How's that for your self-esteem, elders? But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, I was just facetious about our self-esteem, but the truth is what we do has value, and God will recognize and honor what we do to his glory. But that's never the main point, is Paul saying. Paul is saying. And that's never, and we often make it the main point. And notice that we will receive our wages according to our labor. I'm so thankful it doesn't say according to our success. Because when you first think first of success, you're thinking in a worldly way. But the reward is for our toil, it's for our labor. And notice that the reward is guaranteed by the owner. He will do this. And therefore, field hands should never be seen as competitors. And they should never see themselves as competitors. Now you see, that's what was happening in Corinth. Well, I, you know, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. The problem is, no, we all have a role to play, but God is the one who's doing the work. So get your eyes and your focus and your emphasis off of personalities and performance and giftedness and get it back on God. 
because the church is God's field. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. And let me stop right there. That doesn't mean that God and Paul and Apollos are all on the same team. It's like, you know, the quarterback and two fullbacks, you know. That's not what this says. We are fellow workers that belong to God. The emphasis is always on God here. It's not that God is our homeboy, our partner, you know, we're, 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 we're linking arms with God, that kind of thing. Find where God's at work and then get busy with Him, you know. No, put yourself under God's holy sovereignty. We are fellow workers with one another. We belong to God. We are God's fellow workers. And then he says, you, so we would be the leaders in the church. And he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, you are God's field. God's the one that grows. And it has to be this way. We have landscape out in front of our house. It has been a two-year battle with our HOA. I don't think any of them watched the sermon, so I can go ahead and talk about it. And it ended up, we, the truth is, we planted and we watered and we have fretted and we have argued about that. But you know, the truth is, God's the one that makes it grow. Now, right now, he's not making it grow, so I don't know what to say about that, but at the end of the day, God's the one that grows. And there's a promise here of reward, and thus there's a warning for leaders, the folly of settling on earthly temporal praise that, are, that is factional and divisive. Someone has said, from men, pastors sometimes get too little or sometimes they get too much. And that's true, but God will give what is deserved, and that's promised. And so the question for those of us who are elders and pastors today is for whose approval are we laboring? We should take that seriously. We're God's field. The church is God's field. The second analogy is the church is God's building. The church is God's building. And that begins in verse 9. The church is God's building. And Let me run through this as quickly but as clearly as I can. First of all, there's only one valid foundation for God's building. There's only one foundation that works. Look in verse 9. You are God's building, the end of the verse. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. That was Paul's specialty. He was a church planter. Everywhere he went, he, he planted a church. So he laid a foundation. And then he says, and someone else is building up on it. Now keep that in the back of your mind because that fleshes out in a moment. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. By the way, there are specifications for how to do God's work. We find it in the Word of God. Ancient scholars have found ancient contracts, literally, contracts of building that have specifications in them, expectations. That seems to be in Paul's mind here. I'm a master builder, but we don't just do it willy-nilly. We don't just do it based on our, our feeling at the moment. There are standards, as it were. There's no real place for creativity once the architect delivers and lays the found, delivers the plans and once the foundation is laid. Let me tell you, especially in ministry, creativity is overrated. Especially when it comes to the foundation. And so what happens is that Paul here inserts a, by the way, that that there's this danger of deconstructing and laying new foundation. To do that is literally a fool's errand. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, His life, His ministry, His message, His cross, His empty tomb, this represents the foundation of the church. And to reject or replace that foundation is damnable because it's wholesale rejection of Christ himself. There are all kinds of examples of current better ideas about how to build a church with a better foundation. Psychology, social justice, humanism, good works, rituals, liturgy. There's only one foundation that works. And it's the foundation that's been laid The message, the person of Jesus Christ. 
So now the presenting issue of how leaders, how spiritual form and follow up and build on that foundation, that's what we're going to find. And once again, the, the project of building the church is not governed by the builders or the workers or the pastor's tastes. It is God's building. It is God's temple. And so look, the way, there are various ways to build. There's only one foundation, but there are various ways to build a church. Look at it, beginning in verse 10. Let me take you back to verse 10. At the end of the verse, it says, Let each one take care how he builds upon the one foundation. Now look in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So those are various ways to build a church. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, let me stop right there. Now, clearly, Paul's not saying the building will be burned up. That's not his point. And he's not even saying that there will be a literal fire, although ultimately there will be judgment upon the earth that is fire. But he's not saying that everything we do will go through some kind of literal flame. He's saying this is the holiness of God, and God's sovereign holiness evaluates everything like a fire. And you've got to recognize one day we're going to give an account. Leaders are going to give an account. The book of Hebrews says the elders of this church will give an account for how we serve you. By the way, the book of Hebrews also says that you will give an account for how you respond to your elders. That feels like a whole sermon series, so I'll just leave that there. But this is God's promise that it will be evaluated. And so in verse 14, again, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. The old preachers used to say, the stench of smoke will still be on their robes. Now, what's the point here? There are various ways a church can be built. And don't lose track. When we talk about the church, we're talking about us, and we're talking about our lives. We're talking about how our lives are, are strengthened, and, and the nexus of our lives as we go about life in this world in the mind of the Word of God, this is all rooted in the church. If you're sitting here saying, well, this is all about the church, and I don't really care about the church, that's a spiritual problem in and of itself. The point here are the materials. You've got, you've got the gold, silver, precious stones, and then you've got wood, hay, and straw. Now, what's the difference? All kinds of ideas. For example, with gold and silver and precious stones, there's a sense of value in those because they're rare. You don't just find them everywhere, as opposed to wood, hay, and straw. There's also a sense that it's one level of work to put up a place of wood or even to build a, a, a straw thatch hut. It's a whole nother labor of work to build a cathedral out of precious stones, out of gold and silver so there's a sense of labor or intensity involved. But in the text, the primary point that's brought out, I'm not saying those things are wrong because I think they apply, but the primary issue is permanence. What's going to last? What's going to last? This holy fire, which is not necessarily to be understood as a literal fire, it's the holy, sovereign evaluation of God. When churches are built, what, la what lasts? You know, you can throw together a shack pretty quickly. When you build a house, what's it take to build a house? A year or more? But what's it take to build a cathedral? Well, decades, not centuries. It's a sense of how much labor is involved, but it's also a sense of what's going to last. Because that cathedral, you can go to Europe today and still see cathedrals that are centuries old. And by the way, lest you misunderstand, those cathedrals don't have anything to do with what's going on in this text, but merely by way of a, a metaphor. Are you investing in building pastors, elders, church? Are you investing in building using things that will last forever? Or are you merely in a superficial, shallow way going about some kind of ministry that at the end of the day will not last? You see, involved here are not necessarily, not necessarily wrong things, 
but inadequate things. These are strawy churches. The, the people in these churches drink nothing but milk. Someone has said it may not be vicious and harmful. It may only be indifferent and worthless. This is a shallowness to be just okay, to, to have enough doctrine to just get by, nothing that's really substantive, nothing that ever challenges us, nothing where we really put our attention into it. It's watered down, and so therefore there's no strong growth that lasts, and we stay worldly, immature. We stay as children spiritually. This is the problem with how some churches are built. And we have to be aware that that must not be us, and at the very same time, we must not become the Pharisee that says, thank God we're not like those churches. Because that's worldliness too. That kind of pride that says, well, we finally have it all together and wish everybody else were as good as we are, is in and of itself a worldliness and an immaturity. So we have to be careful. There'll be an evaluation There'll be a testing. It's going to happen someday. And this is, though this is primarily for leaders, the Bible says we all will give an account. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, we read this warning, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, We make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. So everything is going to be evaluated. And God will give rewards by His grace. But what a sad picture. What a sad picture for people who are building churches for leaders, for elders, who would profess to be doing the work of God, but the holy judgment of God ends up burning it all away. And they'll be saved, because we're not talking here about issues of apostasy. We're just talking about issues of shallowness, of carelessness, of superficiality. And they'll be saved, but they'll bring no rewards with them, as it were, as we cast crowns at the feet of Jesus, there'll be paupers with nothing to offer. That's a warning here to leaders, but obviously it's a warning to all of us. By the way, when I think about this, and I think about this worldly way of doing ministry, it reminds me of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't go around doing your good works before people, because if you do that, you've got your reward. I think the point here is that for people who build superficial churches on doctrine that won't last, on, on kind of superficial, showy, kind of programmatic things. And I think they've got their reward. Sometimes churches are built on charm, on personality, on oratory, on positive thinking, on managerial organization, sometimes on emotions or on production values. None of that lasts. Not to say it's bad, just none of it lasts. Now, if you're thinking with me on this, I hope you are, surely some of you have thought, where were the leaders in all this? I mean, this church, it was a mess. Where were the leaders? And that's a great question. How had they built did Paul have them in mind, literally? He'd been gone for about four years. Without naming them, was he frustrated with the way they had built? Because evidently things were wrong in the church. Well, the question you have to ask about that, because we don't know. It's in the white spaces of Scripture, so we don't really know about the leaders of the Corinth church. But the question you have to ask is, first of all, who was at fault, the leaders or the people? And nearly always the answer to that is yes. Because leaders can lead in ways that take people astray, but the people, this letter is to the people of the church. It's as though Paul is saying, grow up! And if your leaders aren't leading in that way, then call them to that. And there are means in the New Testament to address leaders who are ineffective or who are ungodly. We don't really know who was at fault 
in Corinth, but we assume it was both the fault of the leaders and the people. Well, real quickly, by way of application, we come to verses 16 and 17, and there are two applications here. The first is this. We should be encouraged. In verse 16, we should be encouraged because look at what it says there. Do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You should be encouraged because the church is God's Spirit's dwelling. It's the Spirit's dwelling. God dwells with people. It started in the garden. It went to the altars. It finally manifests itself in the tabernacle, the presence of God, and in the temple. And then Jesus said he was the temple. And then there's the church, which is the temple of God. And then his kingdom will be on earth. And then we found in Revelation that eternally God will be with his people. So the question is, right now, where is God with his people? And I'm going to tell you, with boldness, I'm going to tell you, right here. Not in the room. The room doesn't matter. God is with his people, the church. You say, yeah, but we've had hard times. God is still here. You say, yeah, but we've still got so many things wrong. We do, but God is still here. I can guarantee you if he's with the church in Corinth, he's with us. His dwelling is here. And later on, we'll find that His Spirit dwells within us individually, and we know that His Spirit dwells in the church universal. But this text says that you, Corinthian church, you are God's dwelling. And we could just as well say, Calvary Baptist, you are the dwelling of God's Spirit. And if that's true, and it is, we should delight in what delights God. We should want to be where God is. We should love what God loves. And be encouraged that the church... Is the Spirit's dwelling place. The second application is don't just be encouraged. The church is the Spirit's dwelling, but be warned because the church is the Spirit's dwelling. That's not just an encouragement. It's a warning. Look at it in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. One commentator said, a church wrecker God will wreck. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I guess I'll say it one more time. We're not talking about the building. We're not talking about the structure. We're talking about the people. And this is, God is pleased to be present with His people. And anyone who destroys this, God will destroy. This is a far more serious offense than inferior workmanship in the building. Whoever those leaders are that build in superficial ways, they'll be saved. They'll just suffer loss because their building is not substantive. But there are some who try to destroy the church of God, perhaps by laying a different foundation or perhaps by by destroying the people in the church, and God will destroy those people. This is apostasy. This is denial of Christ. And it's a sad thing when church buildings become condos or office space, but it's much sadder when church bodies no longer represent the body of Christ. When It's just a religious gathering. It's just a do-gooder gathering. It's just a gathering of people for whatever reason that's absent of the presence of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God and the glory of the cross and the only way of salvation. We should be warned. God cares about His church. His spirit dwells here. Some of you know years ago, Christy and I had an experience that was not a pleasant experience with the church. And we had friends that were saying, fight, defend yourself, vindicate yourself. What's being said is not true. And they were right. But we were careful. Uh, We weren't heroes in this at all. But we were careful because we were afraid to destroy God's church. It was painful to walk away. But we did because God cares about His church. Be warned, the church is God's spirit. His spirit's dwelling. Now I leave you with this. Where is the mind of Christ in all of this? 
The mind of Christ is when God's people in the church think biblically, live biblically, choose biblically. They live biblically oriented and eternally focused lives, not lives given over to this world. That's the mind of Christ. And so your takeaway today, no matter who you are, this is the way God works in his church. And so your takeaway is this, no matter who you are, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. Maybe you've been a milk eater for a, or a meat eater for a long time. You haven't arrived. You know the reason you haven't arrived is because the mind of Christ that we just said is in us. The mind of Christ is infinite, and we are not. So we're not there yet. We have the mind of Christ, but for that mind, the presence of Christ to form us into conformity with His Son is a never-ending process of growth. And so I'm challenging you today. Time to grow up, wherever you are. However much you're given over to worldly philosophy and worldly thinking. Maybe you've walked in faithfulness with Jesus for 40 years. There's more journey. There's more to go. Never give up. It's time to grow up. Because immature worldliness benefits no one. God calls us. To grow up into Christ. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts on these things. There's plenty here, much of it for leaders of the church. And I pray that those of us who are elders and servants here will recognize the serious charge that is in this text about how we build. Lord, particularly, we would pray that we would never think that we need to lay a new foundation, that we would be satisfied with that one foundation that is laid, the Lord Jesus, all that He is and all that He has done. But Father, sometimes we can build in superficial ways. Sometimes we can build in ways that are lazy. Sometimes in ways that are shallow. Sometimes we're too enamored with pragmatism. We're too enamored with creativity or show. And Father, while any good gift can be used to your glory. Lord, help us make sure that we are rooted and grounded in this glorious mystery that you are building your church, that the church is your doing, that our role in the church is sovereignly designed by you. It, we don't have a choice to walk away. We, we are called by you to be part of a church family and Father, sometimes we are short-sighted and we are shallow and we are superficial. Our eyes are distracted by the allurements of this world. Make us people, make us a church, and particularly help us as leaders to stay grounded in the things of substance that will last through every test of time and will survive the searing test of your holiness so that we might have a reward. And we know that even that reward is solely by your grace. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.